In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on the behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How, how then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Are you a genealogy skipper? When you get to those long lists of unfamiliar names in the Old Testament, do your eyes begin to glaze over? Does your mind start to wander to what you had for breakfast or what you're going to have for dinner? It's okay. Christ Church is a safe place to admit that you're a genealogy skipper. So if you are, it may not be obvious to you why our Advent series is focusing on the genealogy from Matthew chapter 1. There were five women chosen as worthy of mention in Jesus' lineage. And if you're not paying attention, you might miss them. But these five names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and Mary, are like hidden gems of gospel truth. They're a reward for paying careful attention to the the hidden gems that, um, that you might overlook. If you ever heard of Easter eggs in a piece of software or in a DVD menu, um, that may sound strange that I'm even going to bring up the idea of Easter eggs, but what the idea is behind an Easter egg is a a hidden piece of information in a piece of software or on a movie menu, and if you click on the right button on that menu, little uh, extra tidbits are available to you that uh, developers put in there, and you can unlock them um, if you find them. And as a reward for finding those hidden buttons um, on, the movies, on the movies menu screen, at least, you can unlock special content like a director's cut or behind-the-scenes footage or deleted scenes. 
And the story that scripture has to tell us about the five women in Matthew's genealogy are like the Easter, Easter eggs of that passage. If you dig into why they're mentioned, it's like you're getting a little director's commentary on uh, what's happening in the story of Jesus beginning at his birth. You're getting a behind-the-scenes behind information that foreshadows the greatest story ever told, a story of self-sacrificing love, redemption, and rescue. So this morning, we're going to continue our path of resisting the urge to skip over the genealogies. We're going to slow down and open up the hidden scene that tells us why it's important that the wife of Uriah is mentioned in Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapter 1. You Bible trivia buffs may already know this, but the wife of Uriah is more commonly known by her first name, Bathsheba, that we read about in 2 Samuel. Her story prepares us for the gospel in this way, by showing us that God's justice is a comfort amidst the wreckage of sin. And here's why. Bathsheba only says three words in this entire story. All of the action is initiated by people around her. She's forced to endure the consequences of the sin of other people, yet God is ultimately faithful to her. To highlight God's faithfulness to her, to her we're going to first look at a vivid illustration of uh, how she was made a victim of the destructive power of sin. Second, we're going to see how God confronts sin. And finally, we're going to see how God brings restoration in the uh, midst of the wreckage. So our first point this morning is a challenging one. It's meant to make us a little bit uncomfortable. When God starts to tell us the truth about the darkness that lies in people's hearts, we don't typically like to face it. But if the Bible didn't tell us the truth about the potential that we have for sin, injustice, abuse, victimizing other people, and uh, the list goes on and on, what hope can it really bring us? If the Bible is unable to openly conf confront our problems, the solutions that it brings will ultimately be empty and hollow. So, as horrendous as Bathsheba's circumstances are at the hands of David, we need to be willing to let this passage confront us with the ugliness of sin. We have to let it stare us right in the face, or we'll miss the beauty of the good news that comes on the other side. There is no victimless sin, and we need to be aware of how it impacts ourselves and others. That way we can rest in repentance and also be challenged to fight against sin creeping up in our lives and causing similar wreckage for us. One thing we learn immediately from Bathsheba's wreck of victimization at the hands of David is that there's a buildup to grievous sin like the ones committed in this story. None of the actions that David took against Bathsheba happened in a vacuum. There are numerous clues that indicate the certain heart conditions on David's part. Heart conditions that provided a seedbed for David's actions to take root and ultimately bear the terrible fruit of adultery and, and murder. Bathsheba was victimized by a man who had distanced himself from his responsibility as king of his people. Look again at verse 1. At the time when kings go out to battle, King David sent his men out to do the dirty work for him. The details of the story give us a clue here that there was something not quite right in the life of David at this point. The irony here is intentional, I think. At the time when kings go out to battle, this king stayed behind. There's something wrong with this picture. David was abandoning his duty. He saw fit to send others to take care of things that he was supposed to be taking care of. 
He no longer felt the burden of being responsible for the leadership of his people. Perhaps he was bored. Perhaps he was overconfident. But we do know for certain that he was establishing a pattern of abusing authority and allowing himself to take advantage of people for whom he was supposed to be caring for. David remained in Israel. Not only has David begun to shirk his responsibilities as a leader, he also seems to have begun to develop a bit of a sense of superiority and entitlement related to his position as king. He was on the rooftop, literally looking down upon everything in the city. Details like this aren't just thrown in for no reason when a, when a storyteller tells us about the actions of people, especially in the Old Testament. He's trying to tell us something about David's mindset when he's describing his location and his movements. Otherwise, he could have just said, David saw Bathsheba and sent for. Instead, we're supposed to develop a picture of a man looking out and surveying everything that supposedly belonged to him. Just as he had distanced himself from the responsibilities of leadership, he was now basking in the sense of authority and ownership and superiority. God had placed him in authority to be down amongst the people of Israel, working for their good. And now, this supposed representative of God was lounging, looking down upon his empire, and strolling on the roof of his palace, palace accomplishing nothing. The Hebrew word used to describe his walking on the roof actually conveys the idea of doing a lot of walking, but getting nowhere. Coupled with everything we read about David in these first few verses, there's no doubt that uh, we're to take this as a study of human fallenness. Here's a man who's lost his sense of duty and responsibility. Here's a man who looks down upon the city of Jerusalem and feels superiority. A man who's putting on the airs of activity and is actually getting nowhere. So in verse 2, when David sees Bathsheba bathing and takes a second look to notice that she was very beautiful, we've been forewarned already about the state of his heart. We have our answer when we wonder how in the world this man, who's um, described as being after God's own heart, could fall into the disaster that was about to take place. It should be no surprise that the next step for David was to assume a sense of authority and ownership over another person. Bathsheba becomes the victim of sin that has been brewing in David's heart for a long time, even before he ever got up off the couch on the rooftop. As soon as Bathsheba becomes the object of David's desire, the destructive power of sin is unleashed. It's a lot like the tsunami that uh, hit the coastline of Japan in 2011. It caused numerous nuclear meltdowns and took nearly 16,000 lives. But it all started with an earthquake 23 miles off the coastline and nearly 18 miles below sea level. Perhaps David's heart attitudes were undetectable to him just like the earthquake was to the people on the coastline of Japan. But the effects are undeniable. Bathsheba became the object of aggressive, dehumanizing lust. She's only given two, two or three words in this entire story. David sends, takes, and lays with her. There's no sense of affection or caring, only impulsive, selfish action on David's part. He sends his messengers and expects results. In verse 5, she's only referred to as the woman when she passes along the message that she's pregnant. David's actions are completely self-centered, and Bathsheba is only the first victim of his sin. 
The horrible irony of all this destruction is that in this bit of in this event of self-centeredness, it ends up taking a toll on more than just the person against whom he sinned. Once David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he has to devise an entirely new scheme to cover up his adultery. As he covers as his cover up attempts are cover up attempts are completely are continually frustrated, he turns to a new scheme and orchestrates the death of Bathsheba's husband. So what's the final tally here amidst, amidst, amidst all the wreckage? A king's reputation is tarnished. A woman is dehumanized and subjected to the lust of a spiritually floundering man. An honorable man murdered in the, co- the cover-up of it all. And a baby born in extremely conflicted circumstances. Bathsheba's life has been turned upside down because of the, destru- of the destructive power of sin. She's been sucked into a cesspool that she really has no control over. The irony is almost too painful to consider when we look at verse 4. Bathsheba was just merely trying to remain faithful to the ceremonial law as she was purifying herself from uncleanliness. And she ends up being subjected to the wreckage of David's violation of the moral law. Do you feel like anything's missing in all the messy details of David's actions against Bathsheba and her husband? Does it feel like the guy who caused all this damage gets a free pass? Basically, Bathsheba suffers at the unchecked selfishness of David when he objectifies her and takes advantage of her. Then she deals with the hidden anxiety of bearing an illegitimate child. Then she loses her husband at David's hands, trying to scheme to cover up his misdeeds. Then she ends up marrying David and bearing his child. Has David gotten away with everything? How has everything worked out for David at the expense of this woman and her family? Where's the justice here? Where is God in all of this? Our second point this morning morning is both the refuge for those damaged by the repercussions of sin and it's a sobering reminder for those who may be far from God this morning. The Lord will confront the sin of those who flaunt his standards and treat others as acceptable casualties of self-gratification. Chapter 11 draws to a close, and Bathsheba's months of turmoil seem to draw to, and conclu- draw to a conclusion, with David getting away with everything that he wants. Bathsheba may have thought that she was simply at the mercy of a lustful, cowardly king. David may have thought that he had figured out a way to get away with everything. There's a serious dramatic and theological tension here. And then we finally get to the um, ominous words at the end of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. For those of you who look out at the world we live in and see suffering and, ju- and injustice on the part of the innocent people, these words should be a solace to you. For those of you who see abuse, neglect, and exploitation of the weak, you can take heart here at the end of of chapter 11. If you feel like one of the marginalized and forgotten members of our society, then listen carefully to the impact of the last sentence that chapter 11 has for you. God is not a casual observer to the victimization of the weak and the helpless at the hands of those who would take advantage of their position or their power. God will not forget the single mother, the orphan, the widow, the abused, the exploited, or the brokenhearted. One commentator on this chapter put it very simply, but very profoundly. The silence of God 
does not indicate the absence of God. Once we let that truth sink into our hearts for just a moment, the very next thing you have to wrestle with is whether or not you can rest in that truth. You see, it's never so simple as just acknowledging that God may be silent, but he's not absent. It's never that, that simple, is it? The problem is that we can acknowledge that God is there, but we still want something more from him. We want, to, we want him to resolve injustice on our terms, or we go back to, right back to assuming that he's not there. We not only have a trust problem, but we also have a patience problem. We assume that if God really cared about me and my situation, or if he really cared about the injustice and oppression that was happening in the world, then he would do something about it, wouldn't he? That he would do things our way. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote, The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble if we, as long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look at things as if man were the center of them. So what does that mean for us? That's a lot to digest. It means that if we take God's silence as a sign that he doesn't love us or care for us, then we may just have too small of an idea of what his love is. And that's really hard to, do, to live with in the middle of the storm. But just as evil seems to run its course successfully, it doesn't mean that God's not watching. Psalm 139 asks the hypothetical question, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Of course, the implied answer is is that there's nowhere you can go to hide from God's presence. Even if we try to hide ourselves in darkness, the psalm continues, even the darkness is not dark to you. Nothing escapes God's attention. When brokenness and injustice seem to go unchecked, it's not because he's indifferent or unaware. His purposes and character are good and trustworthy. There will be times when we're called to adjust our expectations or expand our idea of what his love looks like, even when we don't understand what he's doing or understand why it doesn't seem like he's doing anything at all. Ironically enough, the very man who wrote Psalm 139 is the man who's trying to cover up his sin and hide it from the rest of the world in 2 Samuel. For David, the words that there's nowhere to flee from God's presence is a very serious problem. Sin will always be confronted, and God's justice will always have its day. In chapter 11, David does all the acting, but as soon as we hear that God is displeased, Chapter 12 turns into God's action. David's sin is exposed, and he receives the news that the child that's conceived between Bathsheba and himself will die because of what David has done. What a crushing blow for David to endure in all of this. He thought that he had gotten away with everything, only to be brought face to face with the justice of God. Now it's crucial for us to recognize that there's application on both sides of God's displeasure. Some of us need to be reassured that God sees the suffering of the oppressed. But others of us need to be reminded this morning of the dangers of thinking that we can hide our sin. Don't be fooled into thinking that you have it all together and that you can keep orchestrating the outcomes of life to your desires. Don't be so hard-hearted as to think that your sin only impacts yourself and no one else. 
God will not let his displeasure with sin go on without a response. He will not allow you to remain comfortable in unfaithfulness. He won't allow me to remain comfortable in my unfaithfulness. It's an act of his grace when he exposes sin in our lives. But it usually involves pain and heartache on the part of those who are exposed. Don't wait. Don't try to hide from him. Let's turn to him again in repentance and faith before the consequences of our sin become more severe and other people are carried into the wreckage. So where do we go from here with Bathsheba's story? We're pretty clearly supposed to understand something about this, the way sin works in the, in the destructive ways that it impacts our hearts and the lives of people. Not only that, we need to understand that God will confront sin and carry out his justice in response to it. So there's sin and injustice in this life. We can't deny it. And there will be consequences for it. But is that all there is for Bathsheba? Is that all there is for us? God in his graciousness tells us that that's not all there is. And that's what this third point, that where our third point leads us to. There's comfort to be found in the Lord amidst the consequences of sin in the here and now. The Lord is with us as a source of restoration. The first source of comfort that we see on display at the end of this story is in the character and promises of God. The prophet Nathan carries the news to David that the child will be, that's to be born will die because of David's actions. That, that, and that's because those actions were such an affront to God's character. What's amazing is that God, uh, David excuse me, doesn't see this proclamation as a reason to give up and despair. He doesn't have a fatalistic look on the outlook on the way God works. Look again at verses 16 and 17 in chapter 12. Once the child is sick, David entered into a period of intense prayer and fasting. He didn't eat. He didn't even get off the ground for six days. This is the picture of a man who is completely convinced of the graciousness and goodness of God in the midst of everything. Of course, he had heard the pronouncement from God that the child would die, but that didn't stop him from seeking God's favor anyway. It's sort of hard for us to understand the situation from our side of the story because we read that David prayed, but we already know what happens. But in those six days of prayer and fasting, David was not in the position of omniscience like we are as we read the story. He didn't know what was going to happen necessarily. For him, God's grace was clearly not just a theological concept. It was the way that he expected God to interact with him because of, the, because of what he knew about God's nature. He knew that God would be gracious, had, had been gracious in the past and that there was plenty of, plenty of motivation to beg God to be gracious on the part of his son. Because David was so convinced of God's goodness, he never thought it pointless to ask for God's favor even when he knew the consequences of his sin were so overwhelming. There's also comfort to be found in relationships with other people. This is probably the most surprising aspect of the relationship between David and Bathsheba. She was somehow able to be comforted by David, even after everything that had happened happened between them. Perhaps she didn't know all the details of everything that had happened. We don't know if David confessed his role in the death of her husband, and we don't know if he relayed the details of what the prophet said about their, the future for their, their first child. 
But from what we do know, we can still say that Bathsheba did suffer much at the hands of David, whether she knew all the details or not. She lost her integrity. She bore an illegitimate child. And now she didn't even know how to hold David's, what to do or how, how to hold David specifically responsible. And she still experienced the loss of a husband and the loss of that child eventually. Somehow David, after experiencing the forgiveness and restored relationship with God, is able to minister to Bathsheba's heart. That relationship has somehow become a source of comfort for her. No doubt it was uh, rooted in David's own repentance and faith. What what an amazing impact it has for David that Bathsheba has made his relationship right with the Lord. In in a marriage that started off on such a bad footing, we would have thought that it would be potential. How could we ever think of there being any good potential to come from it? Bathsheba could have been justifiably bitter for the rest of her life. But instead... God brought something good for her from the very one that had treated her so, so poorly in the past. God's grace can work even in the most improbable of relationships. We see that evidence in the everyday work of the church. The church is an institution made up entirely of sinners who have been confronted by their need for grace. As a result, we regularly have the opportunity to restore others who are in need of forgiveness. Husbands and wives... Think about the potential you have for comforting one another as you both base a relationship upon dependence on God. There may be those of you who have feel emotionally cut off from your spouse this morning. Pray for the ability to open back up again. If Bathsheba could be comforted by David, then just about anything is possible for restoring a relationship. Finally, God comforts Bathsheba with the birth of another child. God is a giver of good things to his people. This second child is born to Bathsheba and to David, and this boy receives the names Solomon and Jedediah. These names signify peace, hope, prosperity, and being loved by the Lord. After everything that Bathsheba has gone through, God grants her the joy of a new child. She, She can begin to look to the future with renewed confidence that God's goodness And pleasure is resting on her again. The sting of the hurts of the past will never go away. But now she has a new life to love, nurture, and pour herself into. And yet, the sting of those hurts that I just mentioned, the heartaches that we've we've discussed, should cause us to wonder just how permanent the comfort could be for Bathsheba in this life. Especially the comfort she received from David. When David picked himself up up off the floor after praying for his dying son, was he ever really able to rest fully in in the words he spoke in verse 23? The answer to both of those questions has to be no. Bathsheba couldn't have been completely and eternally comforted in this life. David couldn't have been completely and eternally comforted in this life as well. Although there was good and beautiful, it was a good and beautiful thing that they were able to draw close together, it was only going to be temporary and fleeting. And that's just the nature of our existence in a fallen world. None of the pain and hurt was completely healed for them. Even the rest that was found in the character and the promises of God would be tainted by tendencies to be unfaithful and forgetful. Any comfort that Bathsheba found 
could only be temporary and short-lived. But the comfort for sinners that would come in Jesus is just what Bathsheba's story is supposed to point us toward. Bathsheba gives us a glimpse of what Jesus came to earth to accomplish for his people. He came to set us free from the destructive power of sin and to give us eternal rest in heaven where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Imagine that. Every, every tear that has ever been shed as the result of our brokenness will be wiped away. Hope has come for us. Comfort for the brokenhearted has come for us. Jesus has defeated the power of sin once and for all on the cross. By his resurrection, he's proven that the victory is sure so that we can take comfort now in the work that we see him accomplishing to get rid to remove the oppression and the injustice that we see in the world as his kingdom advances. We can seek to reverse the destructive power of sin in our communities and in our own hearts as we take part in the spread of the gospel. And we can look forward with hope to when he returns to make all things new. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being truthful with us about the state of our hearts apart from you. Help us to draw near to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would work in us a repentance and faith that is long-lasting and makes an impact in our own lives and causes restoration in us and in our relationships. We thank you for the work of your son. Thank you that he came to bring us comfort and to make us new. And we thank you for your continued work in us and your promises to be with us and to never leave us and to never forsake us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.